noticed it earlier, so technology. Um, real quick, before we get into the sermon this morning, one thing I, I've failed to mention actually at the beginning of each service, I've had to work it in, is just an, another reminder, uh, this Sunday night or early Sunday morning coming up, uh, we spring forward. So do not forget to set your clocks for it. Every service has a, a, they've got a buffer. If the 830 people forget or the 815 people, they can tap into a 945. If the 945 people forget, they can come at 11. If you all forget, you're making lunch because that's what it's coming down to. So, so don't forget next week uh, to, to do that, and um, just, we just have to sacrifice that hour of sleep. All right, so we continue with our series this morning, simply titled, You're Invited. And over these weeks of Lent, in the times that I'll be preaching, we'll be looking at the invitations of Jesus, the unique invitations of Jesus that we receive through the gospel story, that we receive through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so last week, we started with that first invitation in the gospel of John, the first chapter, which was simply, come and see. It was the invitation Jesus spoke to Andrew and to Philip. It was the invitation that Philip then gave to his brother Nathaniel. Come and see. Well, today we're going to pick up right where we left off last week with the next invitation of Jesus to follow. And so we, we begin, actually I'm going to begin at verse 40, which is right where we stopped last week. And I'm going to reread some of the verses that were part of the, the message that, that we discussed uh, the relationship between Philip and Nathaniel. We looked at that last week, but I'm going to reread those again as well. So again, John chapter 1, verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, just pause for a moment. Remember last week we said, found people, find people. That's what Andrew does. He has been found by Jesus, and he in turn finds his brother to be the instrument to bring him to Jesus. Found people, find Jesus. So he brings Peter to Jesus, and in verse 42, continuing, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. 
Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that in these moments we would see greater things. See with our hearts. See through open spirits. See through ears that are ready to receive the things that you would show us. That we may grow close to you in faith and obedience. We pray in Christ. Amen. So I've shared with you, um, specifically a month ago, you know, that Ryan has recently turned um, 16. And, and as a 16-year-old, he's uh, in the process of, of, he's anticipating, really, I should say, uh, the opportunity to engage, to participate in that rite of passage that probably all of us have been a part of, and that is the opportunity to get his driver's license. And so in the next few weeks, he's got a few weeks yet before he can go and take the test, as I said before, and the rules some of you may know, the kid, these young adults now have to have their uh, permit for a year. So at the end of March, he's going to be able to go and uh, schedule or go and just wait in line at the DMV and take his driving test. And so as we're apt to do as adults, sometimes we live vicariously through our kids. We remember our experiences through our children. And, and I remember, I'm drawn in, into the memories of, of my own experiences of waiting with anticipation to get that piece of plastic that to me meant freedom. That meant I could go and do what I wanted to do and go where I wanted to go. Now, of course, there were strong limits on both of those understandings of freedom. But, but the idea was, and I remember when I turned 16, the day I turned 16, I was at the DMV first thing in the morning and uh, taking the driver's test and taking at that point, uh, I took, had to take the written test at that stage as well. And so I had to prepare. I had to study the way that we do. You have to learn the, the rules. And, and most of the rules of driving are fairly straightforward. They're fairly obvious, stop on red, go on green, you know, that kind of stuff. Common sense, common courtesy, though I don't know the way I watch people drive. I'm not sure how much common sense there is. But the point is we remember those kind of things. We have to learn if we're going to engage in driving, which is really a, a journey, the opportunity to use an instrument, a vehicle, to engage in a, in a journey to get from point A to point B. We have to learn the laws of the road. We have to know what the rules are and what go governs and guides our behavior. And I said, most of those are straightforward. But there are some pretty quirky ones out there. There are on the books in various parts of the United States some very strange rules that apply to driving or owning a motor vehicle. And because I believe it is my job to educate you and prepare you should you ever need to know some of the more obscure laws of the land. Allow me to enlighten you this morning. Little Rock, Arkansas. Anybody from Arkansas in here? All right. Little Rock, Arkansas. If you find yourself in Little Rock, understand this is the law. No person shall sound the horn on a vehicle in any place where cold drinks or sandwiches are served after 9 p.m. <laughs> Just to keep that in mind. All right, a lot of you have animals. A lot of you um, are in, have livestock and various kind of, of animals in your homes or, or farms. Uh, in Montana, in case you're in Montana, it is illegal to leave a sheep unescorted in a truck. It doesn't say anything about a car, but in a truck you cannot leave your sheep. I'm not writing them, I'm just sharing them. Tennessee, how many Tennesseans? 
All right, there's a few. Now you're worried. <laughs> Tennessee has a law that prohibits shooting at animals from a car, which is a good law. I don't know why we need it, who's thinking that that's a good idea, but you cannot shoot animals from a car unless that animal happens to be a whale. <laughs> Think about the geography of Tennessee. If you see a whale on the side of the road in, say, Chattanooga, then you are free to blast away. So, uh, all right, a couple more. This is a couple more I probably shouldn't share, but I'm going to. This isn't so much about driving, but this is a rule that relates to owning a car in San Francisco. If your car is dirty and you wash your car, which is a good idea to do, you are prohibited by the laws from drying your car with used underwear. <laughs> and all God's people said, ew. Um, and you know somebody did it, which is why they had to put it on the laws. All right, last one. This is actually a few years old now. But if uh, anybody from Virginia, any Virginians? All right, there's a few of you. All right, here we go. This is from Waynesboro, Virginia, decades ago. It was illegal for a woman to drive down Main Street in Waynesboro, Virginia without her husband walking in front of the vehicle waving a red flag. <laughs> and I am not touching that one with a pole. No way. Now, those are silly and, you know, I, I pulled them up to, you know, give us a moment to, to laugh. And they're, they're all real. I didn't make any of those up. But we know that those are kind of ridiculous. The truth is we know that the rules do matter, though. Most of the time, uh, they're important. They guide our journey. They kind of frame uh, behavior. They frame uh, expectations. They, they frame um, the way that we engage the world, whether it be in a vehicle or, or in our workplaces, in our, in our relationships. Rules, rules help us understand expectations. Jesus, in this invitation, follow me, gives to Andrew, to Philip, to Peter, to Nathaniel, as he will for the others that will follow and become disciples. He gives them an invitation. But understand what he gives them is an invitation to a relationship. The word follow me or follow in the Greek, it has a, a prefix that means union. And the root word means a journey or path. So what Jesus is saying is join me in my path. Join me in my journey. Come alongside. And it is an invitation to a much more significant commitment than he had previously given. In the verses that were before John 1.43 that we read last week and, and even embedded in Philip's conversation with Nathaniel, Jesus had given them an invitation to come and see. It was an invitation to come be a casual observer. No commitment level, no nothing deeply required other than to observe, to watch, to experience, to listen uh, to engage a little bit with who Jesus was and to begin to, to decide for themselves 
who they understood, this man, this teacher, this would-be prophet, this Messiah, who they understood him to be. And as I said, that's where all our journeys begin. Even if we've been raised in the church, your journey at some point of owning your faith began with come and see, with, with receiving and wrestling and, and looking and, and watching through others who Jesus is and whether you believe who he says he is. But at some point, Jesus gives an invitation to all of us, as he did to those disciples, to take a deeper step. Now, in the gospel reading today, that happens in a day's time between, for Philip and for Andrew. One day he's inviting them to come see. The next day he gives them, as he's getting ready to return to Galilee, he gives, a, gives an invitation to, to follow. Now understand, that is descriptive of theirs. That is not necessarily proscriptive. And what I mean is that's not the model for all of us. For some of us, that process between invitations is significantly longer. It's significantly more drawn out. There's significantly more time involved. But at some point, we get that same invitation to be in union with Jesus in the journey that he calls us to. But understand, it requires much more. It begins to require of us an obedience. It begins to require of us a willingness to let go of what the old ways of our lives and to begin to receive a new understanding of who we are and who we're called to be. I love in Matthew and, and Mark and Luke and in some texts we'll look at in weeks to come that when it says Jesus gave that invitation to follow me, it says the brothers James and John and there again Peter and Andrew, it says that they dropped their nets and they followed him. This understanding of letting go of the way of life that they had known to begin a new experience, to begin a new path and a new journey with Jesus. And as we are invited to that journey, just like they were, as we hear that call upon our lives, we're invited to move from one place to another. See, as I said, we all start as, as casual observers. And Jesus invites us to be committed followers. But see, in between there is, there's, a, there's a place I think many of us find ourselves. And it's called convinced listeners. I believe this is where a lot of Christians are today. We're convinced listeners. We believe Jesus is who he is. We, we trust in his word that he's the son of God, but we haven't yet become committed enough to let go of some things that we want to hold fast to. We, we come to Jesus and we kind of want to dictate the terms of discipleship. Well, yeah, Lord, you know what? I will submit my relationships to you, but you know what? I really want to keep my finances for myself. I don't quite want to submit that area of my life. Committed or, or convinced listeners. Or, yeah, you know, Lord, I, I understand that, that, that you call me to, to practices of, of discipleship and, and obedience and worship, and, and I want to do that. But, you know, when, when I get to work, when I get around my friends, when I get around people, who are, I really would rather keep that faith to myself. I don't really, because people think, oh, I don't want to think I'm weird. And so I'd rather kind of keep my faith bottled up so, so that I can fit in. And so what we do is we want to selectively dictate the terms of discipleship. Now, there's a story in Luke chapter 9 of those whom Jesus calls to follow who want to dictate the terms of discipleship. One whom Jesus calls, and he says, yeah, I'll follow you, Jesus, but first let me go bury my family. What he's saying is let me wait for them 
to pass away. I got some other things I need to take care of first. And to another one, he says, well, wait a minute, I'll do that, but first let me go take care of some family business. And Jesus says, no one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, you don't get to come to discipleship, not committed discipleship, not answering the call to follow. You don't get to dictate those terms. We come in obedience. And that's a problem for many of us. It's a problem for me. There's a lot of areas I'd rather massage faith, and I'd rather kind of dictate what, what exactly Jesus wants to do with my life. And it's a challenge between Convinced listener and committed follower. Jesus calls the disciples to follow, to enter into a journey, to let go of the old and receive the new and begin to learn what holiness looks like through time spent with him. And it's the same invitation that we receive. And when we begin to, to, to wrestle with that invitation, at least for me, what I begin to start to process is, all right, Lord, if you call me on this journey, just like getting in the car and driving, I want to know what are the rules of the road? What's expected of me? How do I need to behave? And who do I need to be in order to, to begin this journey? And so what happens is we fall into a trap, and we get discipleship, and we get faith turned upside down. And we begin in the wrong place. For many of us, what happens is we begin discipleship. We begin a relationship with Jesus with the belief that somehow it's all about our do's and don'ts. In other words, if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to get the vows and the thou shalt nots right. And so, I mean, sit down and, and talk sometimes with, with any group of people and ask them what it means to be a Christian. And you're going to get a lot of people that are going to say, well, to be a good Christian, it means um, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, and you do do this, and you do do this, and you do do this. The problem is that's upside down discipleship. The problem is that's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't say to Andrew and Philip, well, here, let me tell you what you need to believe. Let me tell you how you need to act. Let me tell you what you need to do. And then you can come and follow me. What Jesus says is come and follow me. And those things will work themselves out. The behavior will be shaped from the relationship. The relationship is not shaped by the behavior. Your discipleship, your holiness, it matters. What you do matters. Our behavior matters. But it is birthed out of our relationship with Jesus. It is birthed out of Christ's claim upon our lives. And we just, we, we flip it upside down. And that's dangerous. And it's dangerous for two reasons. One, when our faith becomes about the do's and don'ts, we can easily become incredibly self-righteous. Oh, my gosh. Heaven forbid somebody claims the name of Jesus and they don't live according to our do's and don'ts, our thou's and thou shalt's. Uh-oh. And we become incredibly exclusive. And the world sees that. And unbelievers see that. And they don't want any part of that. They just don't. We become incredibly self-righteous. And here's the other problem. Who gets to list, make that list up? I mean, there's some big stuff that as a church we agree on. But there's a lot of minor points of do's and don'ts that we are incredibly divided on in the church. I had a, a professor at Duke who taught church history from the Reformation through modern day. And uh, he was what I called a stereotypical German Lutheran. And what I mean by that, and I say that with affinity, he was, you know, he was a big, imposing man. His last name was Hildebrand. And he had a thick German accent. And he talked about his tradition, and he loved the church, and he loved his Lutheran upbringing in Germany. But I remember him talking, and he was describing to us what it was like to be a German Lutheran. And he said, let me tell you about the German Lutherans. German Lutherans are the kind of people that will sit in the basement of the church drinking a beer 
arguing about whether or not it's sinful to dance. Okay? Okay? And his whole point was they had this code of what they believed was right and what was wrong. And we all do. And that matters. And I'm not saying that's not important. Holiness is birthed out of a relationship. But the thing is, we don't always agree on all those points. We just don't. And it's okay for us to disagree. And it's okay for us to wrestle with and contend with what it means to live according to the way of Christ. As long as we remember that our starting point is not our rules. Our starting point is Jesus. Here's the rule of the road. It's all about Jesus. And so what we seek to do is to live in obedience to the image and to the to the model that Jesus gives to us. He says to Nathaniel, you are going to see remarkable things. I think the lessons, the holiness, the obedience, the faithfulness they lived into grew out of their relationship with Jesus. And I can find a lot of common ground with people who share a passion for Jesus, even if we disagree on some of the aspects and the realities of life. Even if we disagree on some of the theological points or the social justice points, but when I know that we're together committed to trying to understand who Jesus calls us to be, we can find common ground. I've told you before about my friend George, who I was in ministry with years ago, who was a Presbyterian, and he was a Calvinist, and being United Methodist, that meant I was Wesleyan, and I know for some of you that means absolutely nothing, but for some of you, you may be familiar with some of the theological differences there. And we would sit around in my office, and we would argue all day long. And when I say argue, I don't mean angrily, I don't mean violently, I just debate. And he would talk about predestination, and I would talk about free will. And he'd talk about this understanding of salvation, and I'd talk about that understanding of salvation. And you know what? We never agreed, ever. But here's what I know. George loved Jesus. And boy, he wanted his life to reflect the love of Jesus. And I considered him a friend and enjoyed that time, and it was okay. It was okay that we didn't agree. Now, here's the follow-up to that story. This is really, really cool. I ran into George, because I've talked about him before, but, uh, but I ran into him about a year ago at a ministry conference and George is now a United Methodist pastor. <laughs> now, I didn't get a chance to talk in any depth about his theology and how his things have changed, but I'm going to tell you what, exactly what went through my mind when I heard George was now a Wesleyan United Methodist pastor. I went, I win. <laughs> uh, I win. And I know that's not a holy way to look at it, and I know it wasn't a competition, but I'll take my victories where I can find them, even if they're all in my head. <laughs> but the, the reality is, for us, holiness and, uh, and obedience and understanding how God wants us to live, that does matter. And it is important. But it's birthed out of Jesus and our relationship with Jesus and our invitation to be with him and be united in this journey, in this path that we're called to. That's where faith comes from. Now, here's the second truth about that. One, it's all about Jesus. Here's the other thing about the journey we're called into. We have no idea where it's going to take us. No idea. I mean, think about this. If, if I said to you today, you know what, let's go on a trip. You get your family, I'll get my family. Let's go on a trip together. What's the first thing you're going to ask me? Where are we going? Where are we going? You're going to want to know. Where, where's it? Tony and I, as we plan vacations with the kids in the summer, we know for next summer, where we're going, how long we're going to be there. We have an approximate understanding of how much it's going to cost. The day we leave, the day we come back, we plan that stuff out. I mean, that's common sense. But, you know, I don't know how many of you had those kind of college road trips where you just got with some buddies and you got in the car and you just went. 
This is much more important and significant. But, but Jesus invites to the journey, but he doesn't tell us the destination. He asks us to trust him in the steps, in the process, in the becoming. The disciples didn't know where Jesus was going to lead them. They didn't know what was going to be asked. They didn't know what it would require. And it's questionable, had they had any idea where, where Jesus was going to take them, whether they'd have ever followed to begin with. Because this journey led them straight to the cross. But they followed and they trusted. The truth is, our journeys, they take us different places. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with, with friends or people I've met or, or actually recently with a young man who I told you about who had grown up in the youth group that Tony and I uh, were, were the youth pastors for years ago. But, but how many times I've talked to those who have been called into the mission field in South Africa or India or South America, and they'll say, we got no idea how we got here. We have no idea. All we know is that we responded to Jesus, and this is where we are. The truth is that, that that's our story. That may not be that dramatic. It may take you just in places in your own neighborhood you wouldn't have expected to go. But the reality is we're called to follow, but we don't know where it's going to take us. Just like Abram, Abraham in the Old Testament. Come and just go. I'll show you where in time, but just go. And we're called because we're invited into a remarkable journey and a powerful journey that invites us to be a part of something more significant than we could ever begin to imagine. That is both seemingly culturally insignificant in so many ways. And when I say that is, is that the world doesn't take note, but has eternal impact. To be a part of a journey that is grace-filled and mystery-laden, because we don't know where it's going to go. But we're invited into that. Andrew and Philip were invited into that. Peter and Nathaniel were invited into that, as were the others, as are we, to be invited into something far more significant and more wonderful than we could ever begin to imagine and more challenging and sometimes far more difficult than we could ever begin to imagine. I, uh, I came across this just in, you know, random places that I end up reading or finding. And it's a letter that is given to new employees of Apple, the computer company. And uh, I thought it was wonderfully appropriate in a far more spiritually significant way. I want you to hear this letter that they give to Apple employees when they begin work. It goes like this. It says, there's work and then there's your life's work. The kind of work that has your fingerprints all over it. The kind of work that you'd never compromise on, that you'd sacrifice a weekend for. You can do that kind of work at this company. People don't come here to play it safe. They come here to swim in the deep end. They want their work to add up to something. Something big. Something that couldn't happen anywhere else. Now if a company that is going to have and a limited lifespan that's going to come and go as all things do can understand the significance of their work in that way how much more does the king of kings the prince of peace the savior of the world call us to something far more significant far more important far more powerful far more wonderful than we could ever begin to imagine on our own something big 
something with eternal impact. That's what Jesus invites us into, for our lives to be changed in relationship and our lives to be used to his glory. We get that come and see invitation to check it out. At some point in our journey, we hear these words, follow me. You have heard them or you will hear them. The question for us today, how do we respond? Let's pray. Loving God, that we would be challenged today. We'd be open today. We'd be honest in recognizing that too often we flip things upside down. You invite us into a relationship. That's where faith begins, to follow. Even though we don't know where the journey would go, we trust that you are part of it. And so we seek to, to hear. And we pray that we'd have the courage and the faith to be obedient. In Christ's holy name, amen.